<laughs> this week we read the, the Perashah of Shelach. This portion of Shelach, which is sending, was Shelach Lecha, uh, which is the sending of the spies, is one of the most difficult episodes, or more difficult episodes in the Torah to comprehend. Uh, the story of the Meraglim. The Meraglim are 12 tourists, or 12 spies, who were sent to scout out the land. The Hebrew word for scouting out is Latour, uh, and they're sent to scout out the land of Canaan. Their mission is a surveillance mission, and they were meant to prepare B'nai Israel, the Jewish nation, so that their entry into the promised land would be smooth and virtually without surprises. The, the entry into the land, especially after we've gone through so many so many miracles leaving Egypt, so many miracles in the desert, so many miracles crossing the sea, so many miracles of the man and the water and the clouds, the, the, the total faith B'nai Israel should have had in Hashem. Uh, that's what it should have been with regard to even coming into the land. Uh, and really coming into the land initially should have been without any mortal meddling. It should have been something where they would have come in and Hashem would have taken care of business. But that wasn't to be, and the results were somewhat disastrous. All of the spies, 12 were sent, except for Kalev and Yoshua. They bring back a tale of woe, predictions of destruction, assurances of defeat. And B'nai Israel, the, the Jews sitting in the desert, they're quickly and simply swayed. This whole expectancy of coming into the land, of this promised land to their forefathers, land of milk and honey, quickly becomes a night of bemoaning. They anticipate terrible misfortune. And this night, the night that they cry, is the ninth day, the ninth day of the fifth month. And this day becomes engraved in our history as a night of weeping. We always say, why is Tisha B'Av such a difficult night? Because the potential of Tisha B'Av, the potential was amazing. It would have been and it should have been the day where we accept that Hashem has given us the land and we're ready to march into the land. But because of that night, we took this incredible potential of energy, potential of greatness, and we short-circuited those wires. And what should have been a wonderful night ended up as a night of crying. And from there, the sages tell us, Tisha B'Av, we see all of the terrible things that befall our people the destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash, the destruction of the second by the Romans, the Inquisition and the expulsion from Spain, the outbreak of World War I, and other things all fall out on Tisha B'Av. So we're going to explore this epic failure of the Meraglim. We're going to try to understand what's going on. Vaydaber Hashem el Moshe lemur. So we begin the Perashah, Hashem is talking to Moshe, Shelach lecha, Anashim, send for yourself men. Send for yourself men. And they should scout out the land of Canaan. Which I am giving to B'nai Israel. One man from each tribe. You should send. Each of them is a prince. So the Torah quickly tells us that these are men, these are delegated leaders of the people, men of stature. The Torah attests to this fact, and it says in the, in the following pasuk, Vayishlach otam Moshe mimidbar paran alpi Hashem, kulam anashim rasheh b'nei Israel hema. They were all distinguished men, the heads of the people. This makes the events that followed all the more surprising and difficult to understand. How do people of such outstanding character fall so easily to the Yetzer Hara, to the evil inclination? It induced them to speak ill of the special land that God gave, he promised to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Clearly, the Meraglim were subjected to a daunting test and they were not able to withstand. It's evident from the following Pesukim that Moshe anticipated the challenge that would face the Meraglim. It says, These are the names of the men whom Moshe sent to spy out the land. 
Moshe called Hoshea ben Nun Yehoshua. So we have Moshe has sort of an assistant who's helping him. His name is Hoshea. <coughs> and Moshe changes his name to Yehoshua. Rashi over there tells us, Moshe prayed for him. May Hashem save you from the plot of the Meraglim. In other words, the task that they faced was so trying that Moshe himself felt it necessary to pray even on behalf of Yehoshua, his disciple. So this raises an interesting question that bothers many of the commentaries. Why didn't Moses, the foremost of the prophets, see fit to pray for the success of all of them? Hashem should save all of them. He should save all of them from the trap of the Yetzir Hara. As we know, due to the sin, the people were not permitted to enter Eretz Yisrael as originally planned. Everything changes. We end up spending the next 38 years, total 40 years in the desert. Everything changes. The Arizal, Rabbeinu Ha'ari, he explains in Sha'ar HaPesukim that Moshe only prayed on behalf of Yehoshua. Why? He says that Moshe was worried that the Meraglim might kill Yehoshua. They would kill him if he if he attempted to prevent them from discouraging Bnei Israel to enter the land. These are the words of Rabbeinu Hari. Moshe did not pray that Yehoshua would not be influenced by the plot of Meraglim to speak about Eretz Israel disparagingly. He wasn't worried about that. That was contingent on their desire to fulfill the will of Hashem. So he says, the test of what you're going to say about Eretz Yisrael, about Israel, is not something that he could pray about to influence what you're going to say. Because what you're going to say is up to your own free will. So what was he praying to save him from? He was worried that they would try to kill Joshua, kill Yehoshua, from, on the way, along the way. How, how, why would they want to kill him of all of the people? Rav, Rav Shmuel Vital is the son of Rav Chaim Vital. In his commentary on Sha'ar HaPesukim, he finds merit in the Meraglim's report. He says that the sin of the Meraglim, the sin of the spies, the sin of the spies was in Avera Lishma. What does that mean? It was a sin for the sake of heaven. Meaning you could do a mitzvah for the sake of heaven or a mitzvah not for the sake of heaven. A sin you do not for the sake or you could do a sin for the sake of heaven. Avera lishma. He asserts that their aim was to prolong the life of Moses. Their aim was to have Moshe continue to lead them in the Midbar for the 40 years. He writes, We could judge the Meraglim in a positive sense. They spoke about the land in negative ways so that B'nai Israel would not enter it because they heard the prophecy which we saw last week of Eldad and Medad who said Moshe is going to die. Yehoshua will bring us in. Therefore, for them it would be preferable to kill Joshua and to prevent B'nai Israel from entering the land because if they did that, Moses would remain alive. And therefore Moshe prayed that Hashem should save Joshua from the plot of the Meraglim. Nevertheless, even if we concede that the Meraglim, they committed an Avera Lishma, they still deserve punishment for this terrible Chilu Hashem. They contradicted and mutinied against Hashem. Hashem promised that the land was good. We see this in the remarks of Kalev. Im chafetz banu, if Hashem desires it. Beheviu atanu el ha'aretz hazot, and He brings us to this land. Menatena lanu ha'aretz, He gives us the land, which is filled zavat halav udvash. It's the land of milk and honey. Ach b'Hashem al timredu, but against God do not rebel. Ve'Hashem itanu, Hashem is with us. So we see so far a simple explanation from the Arizal why he's praying on behalf of Joshua to prevent the death of Joshua from the Meraglim who would kill Joshua to prevent the prophecy from coming true. 
There's an alternative interpretation. The Arizal brings in Sha'ar HaPesukim, and there he presents the mission of the Miraglim in an entirely different light. He brings to our attention the nuance in the text regarding the princes of Ephraim and Menashe, the two sons of Yosef. We see that all of the spies, all of the princes who are spies are named one by one. And each of them is named from which tribe they come from. When it comes to Ephraim, Ephraim is the son of Joseph. Joseph has two sons. The elder son is Menashe, the younger son is Ephraim. In verse 8, it says, Lemate Ephraim Hoshea bin Nun. From the tribe of Ephraim, we have Hoshea, who's Yehoshua. But when it comes to verse 11 later on, it says, Lemate Yosef, from the tribe of Joseph. Lemate Menashe, from the tribe of Menashe. Gedi ben Susi. Gedi ben Susi. So, if we're writing Joseph's name, we would write Joseph in the first verse that refers to the children of Joseph, if we're going to only write it once. Here we only have it the second time, the second tribe that's named as a descendant of Joseph. So the question everyone asks, why is Joseph's name not mentioned in association with Ephraim? To make sense of this, the Arizal reveals to us what can be viewed as Sod Hashem Lireav. The secret of Hashem revealed to those who fear Him. Rabbeinu Ari teaches us that when Moshe Rabbeinu sent the Miraglim to scout out the land, Hashem sent the holy Neshamot of the original Shevatim, of the sons of Jacob along with them. Each one of the sons of Jacob attached himself to the leader of its respective tribe in order to assist them to succeed in this difficult test. This is the implication of the words, Kulam Anashim All of them were distinguished people. They were the leaders of Bnei Israel. But the words are, they were the heads of Bnei Israel, meaning they were the original Shevatim. They were the sons of Jacob, who is also known as Israel, and they attach themselves to the Meraglim. With this understanding, Rabbi Hari explains why Moshe prayed only on behalf of Yehoshua, not on behalf of the other Meraglim. Every other Shevet had the Neshama of the head of the Shevet attached to it. They were there to help withstand the daunting task ahead of them. Yehoshua, however, the prince of Shevet Ephraim, the son of Yosef, did not have a distinguished neshama attached to him because the neshama of Yosef already attached itself to the prince of the Shevet Menashe. Menashe, we said, was Yosef's firstborn. This explains why Yosef's name is only associated with one tribe, Menashe, and not with Ephraim. Therefore, Moshe had to pray a special prayer to save Yehoshua from the plot and the fate of the Miraglim. The Arizal explains the significance of the name change introduced by Moses. What did he do? He changed his name from Hoshea to Yehoshua. He basically adds a yud at the beginning of the, the word. And what does he say? That Hashem, but he uses the name of Hashem, a yud and a hey, the first two letters now of Yehoshua. Yud Hey Ka Yoshiacha, God will save you from the spies. Now, who's the head of the Shevet of Levi? Who would we say is the head of the tribe of Levi? The head of the tribe of Levi is Moshe Rabbeinu, and Levi had not yet attached itself to any tribe. After all, Shevet Levi, the Leviim, did not really participate in the mission of the Meraglim because they didn't really get a portion in the land. Therefore, by naming his pupil Yehoshua, Moshe was praying that Hashem would send the Neshama of Levi, which should have been attached to Moses, to attach to Yehoshua, who was like a son to him as a student. Moshe felt the attachment of Levi's Neshama 
would help his pupil withstand the influence of the Meraglim. So interesting to think why Levi. See, Levi is the one who stands up, who's willing to do. When 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 Moshe says Mila Hashem, the whole tribe of Levi comes forward. So he hoped the influence of Levi, who's willing to do what he wants to do, would be enough to push Yehoshua not to be influenced by the others. Rabbi Pinchas Friedman he elaborates on the choice of the name Yehoshua. We explain that Moshe is taking this name of Hashem, the Yud and the Hey Ka. And he adds that, and that brings the neshama of Levi to Yehoshua. We learn in the in the in the in the Mishnah that in the temple in the Bet Hamikdash, there were fifteen steps that ascended from the Ezrat Nashim, where the woman stood, to the Ezrat Israel, where the men stood. And it says vechamesh maalot olot. There were fifteen steps going up. These 15 steps relate to the song Shir HaMa'alot recorded by David HaMelech. These are in Tehillim from 120 to 134. They're the shortest ones. If you ever have to say a bunch of Tehillim, take 120 to 134. Also, that is where the Leviim stood on these steps when they sang during the Chag, during the festival of Sukkot. During the specific, the, the water ceremony, the Simhat Bet on each step they sang one of the Shir HaMa'alot. And concerning this joyous ceremony, the Mishnah says, Hasidim and men of good deeds would dance before them, flaming torches in their hands. They would sing words of song and praises and the Leviim with their harps, cymbals, trumpets, lyres, countless other musical instruments stood on these 15 steps which correspond to the 15 Shir HaMa'alot in Tehillim. For on them, the Leviim would stand with their musical instruments and they would sing their songs. This is also described by Rashi in his commentary on the first of the Shir HaMa'alot. He says it was to be recited by the Leviim on the 15 steps. In the Ritva's commentary on the Haggadah, he explains that the reason we have 15 good ma'alot, 15 good ma'alot in the Haggadah, which we sing Dayenu, why 15? Why 15 levels? Because these 15 relate to the same, the same Shir HaMa'alot, the same songs of ascent, the songs of the steps of the 15 steps. The Gemara relates to the Pasuk and it says, Ki beyudke behashem. Hashem Sur Olamim. This is the strength of Hashem of the worlds. The Gemara teaches us that Olam Haba, the future world, was created with the letter Yud. And we have a Yud and we have a He. The Olam, the future world with the Yud, the present world with the He. Seeing that the Bet HaMikdash provided Kedushah and life to the entire universe and both worlds, there were 15 steps in the Bet HaMikdash corresponding to the name Yud and He, Ka, from which both worlds were created. The, the numerical value of a Yud is 10, the numerical value of a He is 5, Yud and He therefore is 15, and again it relates to the Shira Mavot. We begin to comprehend the explanation of the Ari. Moshe renamed his pupil Yehoshua. He wanted to draw this Neshama of Levi. How was he going to do it? Through this divine letter of the Yud and the He. Through their singing on the 15 steps in the Bet HaMikdash, the Leviim also invoked the Yud and the He, Ka, with which the two worlds were created. Therefore, it's fitting that this name alludes to the Neshama of the head of the tribe of Levi and alludes to the descendants who are connected to his name. So what exactly happened with the Neshamot of the original Shevatim that attached to the Meraglim? They come into the, the Meraglim, and then what happens? In Sha'ar HaGilgulim, Rabbeinu Ari explains that there's a big difference between the reincarnation of a Neshama, a Gilgul, and the attachment of an Ibur. It was interesting. Rabbi, Rabbi Far, he gave a class on Sunday, and he started to explain, and he said, ah, we're not going to explain this. So he left it to me. So what is this idea of Ibur? Gilgul, which we've discussed a number of times, 
is a soul that left the world and to rectify a blemish or a shortcoming from a prior incarnation, that soul comes back into this world within a body and that soul enters that body and it's with that body from the day of birth until the day of death. That soul experiences and endures all the afflictions suffered by the physical body. And that includes the suffering of death. But in addition to this concept of Gilgul, where a soul returns back again, most of us, I believe, in Gilgul, occasionally there's a neshama of a sadiq. This is a sadiq who fulfilled his role. He's a sadiq in Shamayim. And what's this sadiq going to do? He's going to descend in olam, into Olam Hazir. And the soul of this righteous person attaches itself to a person to help that person through a difficult trial or situation. It hasn't come for its own sake, but it, it, it doesn't come to rectify its own blemishes. But we can do something, and from something that we do, that neshama from heaven comes, attaches itself to us to help. Occasionally, the neshama of a sadiq descends to this world. It attaches itself to a person to help that person through a difficult trial or situation. This is what's in Ibor. So it's not compelled to endure the suffering of that particular body. It only stays with the person for as long as it's needed. Now, if the neshama of the sadiq derives pleasure and pride from this person's behavior and actions, it remains with him for a short period of time. There's a story where a student comes into Rabbeinu Hari and Rabbeinu Hari gets up and Rabbi Chaim Vital wants to know why is the rabbi getting up to stand for this student? And the Rabbeinu Hari tells Rabbi Chaim Vital, I'm standing up for the neshama that entered into this student. So they ask the student, what did you do so special? And he tells him of a deed of charity that he did, which went way on, way beyond what one should do. And therefore he merited an ibur from this sadiq to come into him. So on the other hand, if the person who gets the ibur behaves improperly, the neshama, the soul of this righteous person, abandons the body prematurely. It doesn't want to be tainted by the person's flaws, by the person's sins. Accordingly, the Arizal explains that the neshamot of the Shabbatim, the souls of the original 12 tribes, they didn't enter the bodies of the, of the, uh, of the princes as Gilgul. They weren't a reincarnation. They weren't a reincarnation of the original. They were Ibur. They came to assist the Meraglim. They merely attached themselves to them temporarily. They wanted to help them withstand this difficult trial ahead. Hence, when the Meraglim opted to speak ill of Eretz Yisrael, the souls of the original Shevatim left them. They left before they sinned, and therefore they remained untainted. In this light, Rabbeinu Hari interprets that which is written after the return of the Meraglim. It says something very strange. Vayelchu vayavou el Moshe el Aaron. They went and they came. They went and they came. The specific language of the Pasuk, it should just say, Vayavo'u el Moshe, they came to Moshe. Why does it say, Vayelchu, they went? After all, they just returned. It was written, Vayashuvu mitocha'aretz, they returned from the land. So why do we need this extra word, Vayelchu? The Pasuk should have just said, they came back to Moses and Aaron. He explained that the term Vayelchu, they went, relates not to the Meraglim, but to the Neshamot of the Shavatim, the souls of the original tribes who left the Meraglim and returned to Gan Eden. Whereas the words they came to Moshe and Aharon relate only to the Meraglim who returned with their poor report. The Ma'or Veshemesh addresses the, this contradiction. He says, at the beginning of the mission, the Torah attests to the fact that they were distinguished people. Kulam anashim, we said. Rashi b'nei Israel, They were important people. The heads of b'nei Israel, they are. This word anashim is, is, is expresses importance. They were people of honor. 
In other words, he says, at the outset of the mission, before they went on their mission, they were still upright, reputable people. Subsequently, however, it says they went and came to Moshe and Aaron. Rashi comments, why does the Pasuk state that they went? To compare their going to their coming. Just as their coming had evil intent, says Rashi, when they went, they went with evil intent also. In other words, he says that when they embarked on their mission, their intent was no longer honorable. Based on what we learned from Rabbeinu Hari, the Ma'or Veshemesh reconciles the contradiction very nicely. When they were initially chosen for the mission, the Pasuk says, Kulam Anashim, they were important people. They were all honorable at that point. Who is Rashi referring to if he says when they went out, they went out with bad intent? It says Rashi must be referring to not the actual Meraglim, but rather to the souls of the Shavatim that attached themselves. They were the Anashim, they were the completely righteous one. The Meraglim themselves without the Iburim, without the additional souls were flawed. Therefore the Torah compares their going to their coming. Both had evil intent. The Torah initially says, Kulam Anashim Rasheh B'nai Israel. They were all distinguished people, heads of B'nai Israel. We learn from the Ari that the description of heads of B'nai Israel alludes to the Neshamot of the Shevatim that attached them. Therefore, Rashi comments appropriately that they were honorable at that time. But at the end of the expedition, they went and came to Moshe and Aaron. Here explains the Arizal, they went indicating the neshamot, the souls of the Shevatim left them. So comparing their going to their coming was also appropriate. Since they themselves, without the attachment of the of the of the Shevatim, of the souls of the of the brothers, went and returned with an evil scheme. Let's go back to Rabbeinu Hari. He interprets the praise Hashem lavishes upon Kalev ben Yefuneh from, from Shevet Yehuda. He says, Ve'avdi Kalev, my servant Kalev, because he had within him Ruach Acheret Imo, a different spirit within him, he followed me wholeheartedly. The Arizal explains the other Meraglim were imbued with a different spirit related to the Shevatim that attached to them. But they didn't follow after Hashem, they left. This one, however, Kalev, from the outset, he had a different spirit. Ruach Acheret, a different spirit. And it was related to the Ibur of Yehuda, of Judah within him. He didn't sin. I saw also that he had within him Chur. Chur, if we take the letters Chur, Chet Vav Resh, you reverse the letters, it spells Ruach. So Ruach HaKheret is Chur. Chur is also Yehuda, And he's part of Yehuda, And then we have the Ibur of Yehuda. Lari explains, The other Meraglim were imbued with a different spirit related to the Shabbatim that had attached to them, but they didn't follow Hashem. This Yehuda did. Therefore he, Kalev, followed me, and he completed the mission properly. At the end, like at the beginning. The reason for these two that did not sin is as follows. Yehoshua was aided by the tefillah of Moshe and the fact that he gave him the name Yehoshua. Kalev was aided by the tefillah he prayed as he prostrated himself on the gravesites of the Avot and Hebron. And therefore he did not sin. So we see what saved the two of them? Tefillah, prayer. Let's go back to Joseph's brothers. They go down to Mitzrayim. They want to purchase grain. They're there during the drought to purchase the grain. Yosef comes to them and he says to his brothers, You are spies. He says, You came down to see Ervat Haaretz. You came down to see the nakedness of the land. He says, This remark is surprising. We're going to say Yosef wanted them to squirm. He wanted them to suffer. He wanted them to have some level of atonement based on the sin of selling him. Nevertheless, Yosef was the paradigm of a Sadiq. 
he surely wouldn't have violated the Kiddushava's speech. So how could he tell his brothers, Meraglim Atem, your spies? He knew they weren't spies. Yet based on what we learned from the Rabbeinu Hari, Yosef HaSadik spoke the truth. With this accusation, he was hinting to his brothers that they were destined to attach to the Meraglim who were delegated to scout out Eretz Yisrael in the future. So what Yosef was saying, Meraglim atem lirot et ervat ha'aretz baratem, your spies who came to see the nakedness of the land, he's actually telling him the truth. And what did, the, what did they answer him? They say, Lo hayu meraglim, we're not spies. They insisted that they wouldn't be guilty like the Meraglim. They would leave the Meraglim's bodies before they sinned. Now we're going to try to understand Yosef's purpose for mentioning to his brothers that they're destined to be Meraglim. Rav Pinchas Friedman has a beautiful, beautiful thought. In Tiferes Yehonatan, the Rabbi Yehonatan Ibishitz provides us with a beautiful gem. The Pasuk says, Vayikar Yosef et Echav. Yosef recognized his brothers. They did not recognize him. In Likutea Torah, the Arizal teaches us that the Neshama of Yosef attached itself to his, his descendant, the king Yerovam ben Nevat, who was from the tribe of Ephraim. However, before Yerovam sinned with Avodah Zarah, Yosef's soul abandoned him. Accordingly, the rabbi explains, this is why the Shevatim wanted to kill Yosef, but ultimately they sold him. He says they saw through Ruach HaKodesh that the Neshama of Yosef would attach itself to Yerovam ben Nevat. They thought it was best to remove him from the congregation of Israel, have him become an Egyptian. They did not see that before Yerovam would sin, the soul of Yosef would leave. Yosef though saw the events fully. Per the Arizal, Yosef saw that all of the Shevatim would attach themselves to the Meraglim. They, in contrast to his brothers, who also saw the Neshama, they, they, they didn't see the Neshama would leave, but they insisting the Neshama would leave. So he knew they didn't participate with the Meraglim. And therefore it says Yosef recognized his brothers. But they didn't recognize him. They didn't realize that the soul of Yosef would leave Yerovam ben Nevat and wouldn't sin. Therefore, he rebukes them. He tells them that they're Meraglim. They're going to see the negativity. They insist, no, we're not Meraglim. We're going to leave. And so it's true that Yosef was destined to attach to Yerovam, but he too left Yerovam before Yerovam sinned. But with all of that, that the Arizal brings us, we remain with a question. We see that Kalev and Yehoshua were assisted through tefillah, prayer. But I don't understand. If the souls of the Shevatim, if the souls of Reuven, Shimon, Yisachar, Zivulun, Dan, Naftil, if all of these souls, these holy souls, entered into the Meraglim, how did they not save the Meraglim? How did they not save them from sinning? How did the Miraglim still sin? I saw in another place that the Arizal explains that the souls of Dor Hamidbar, the souls of the generation of the desert, did not match up with Eretz Israel. And the test was to overcome the challenge and the mismatch. I saw a friend, Rabbi Pinchas Winston, he quotes, According to the effort is the reward. He suggests that had the Miraglim battled their Yetzer Hara, their evil inclination, had they accepted the land, they would have been the greatest of heroes because of what they would have had to fight against to make their decision. Rabbi Abitan would always explain to us that life is always 50-50. So as we grow on one side, we're challenged more on the other side. It always has to be 50-50. If it's here, they're both here. He says that even with the boost of the Shivatim, there still has to be a test. There still has to be a challenge. The boost is not an automatic win. 
Because life is always a test. Every single day we face a test. And the challenge of the Miraglim was a challenge of perspective. We wrote this week in our article, how crucial is perspective in our lives? How do we adjust our own perspective? And how do we influence paradigm shifts in other people? It could be as difficult as requiring an additional soul to enter a body. The Ibur is coming to try to push our perspective, to try to get us to see a little different, to act like corrective lenses of glasses. Or it's a simple of taking the glasses and putting them on. A simple word might change the way we think. With the background, I want to look at a question that came up at a class during breakfast this week. We noticed that we we noted already the the portion begins. Send for yourself, Moshe people. Let them scout out the land of Canaan. We said the verb is latour to scout. If we jump to the last paragraph of the entire portion, we read a paragraph that we are all familiar with. This is a paragraph we read every day, usually twice a day, when we read the Shema. The words we wish to focus on are these. Here Hashem commands us not to scout or spy after our hearts, after our eyes. We open the portion of the spies with the verb Latur to scout. We close the portion with the same verb. There must be a connection. What is the connection? The verb is seen in the beginning. The verb is seen in the end. Anytime we have the similar same word, there has to be a connection. So as is usual when we study Torah, the first question brought us to a second question. The order of the heart and the eyes within the verse we read, You shouldn't go after your heart. After your eyes. It seems to be the reverse. Normally we see something with our eyes and then we desire it with our heart. Why does Hashem dictate the reverse? Why does the heart become before the eyes? When looking at the story of the Meraglim, of the spies, it's important to try to review the history. The name Israel served Egypt for two centuries. And then there's a series of miraculous plagues against the Egyptians. Plagues against their their taskmasters. And suddenly, B'nai Israel, on the night of Pesach, they're freed. They leave Egypt, and a week later, they come to the sea. What are we going to do? And then we have all the miracles that take place of the sea, the splitting of the sea. The events that take place in Egypt, the events that take place at the sea, do not go unnoticed. We read each day in Az Yashir, Namogu kol all the residents of Canaan, all the residents of the land of Canaan trembled. They trembled with fear. Undoubtedly, they prepared for the coming of an army of 600,000. 600,000 former slaves are coming to take over their country. They got ready. With that in mind, let's ask another question. How is it possible for 12 spies who go into a nation and all of these people in this country of Canaan, all of these kings in Canaan, they're all waiting for Bnei Israel to come in. They're all standing ready to, 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 to defend themselves. How do we have a week go by? I mean, 40 days go by, six weeks, and they're not detected. This week we read in the Haftarah about Joshua sending two spies in. This happens 38 years later. Joshua sends two spies to scout the city of Yericho, Yericho prior to Bnei Israel coming. That's in common with this week's Perashah. He sends two guys for one day. They send 12 guys for 40 days. The two guys arrive in Yericho. They stay at a lodge or an inn located in the walls of the city owned by a woman named Rachab. And their presence is discovered. The king sends for Rachab asks her to turn in the guests. Rachab responds, they already left the city. While she really hid them on the roof. 
Imagine not 24 hours pass, and this time there's only two spies. One of them is Kalev, who was there before. The other is Pinchas, who may have been like the superhero who could make himself uh, invisible. And what happens is they're caught almost immediately. Let's return to the 12 spies. What prevented their detection and prevented their capture? The Torah tells us they brought forth to B'nai Israel an evil report on the land. An evil report on the land they spied out. They said the land we went through, the land devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw were huge. Rashi explains, what does it mean the land devours its inhabitants? The Meraglim complained, everywhere we went, we passed, there were people burying their dead. What happened is the Miraglim missed the point. Hashem caused so many deaths among them at the time so that the Canaanites were engaged in burying their dead and that would give cover to the spies because the Canaanites were busy burying their dead. They didn't pay attention to the spies. We ask how can an event that, was, that, was, that God provided to be beneficial be misconstrued so badly as an omen of misfortune. I'm sure that the story I'm going to tell you, I first heard from my father-in-law, Jerry Worman. My father-in-law was in the shoe business. His family was in the shoe business for a hundred years. And I loved when I first heard the story from him. And it was funny because years later, I heard the story from, from Mordechai Kamenetsky. And I said, whoa, that's Jerry's story. It says, back in the early 50s, a large shoe consortium with wholesaling and stores across the United States and Canada decided they wanted to take their business into the emerging continent of Africa. So they sent two of their senior salespeople to explore the prospects of business in the remote villages of Africa. After one week, one of the salesmen sent back a telex. I'm returning at once. There's no hope for business. Nobody here wears shoes. They didn't hear from the other salesman for a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Finally, he sends a cable. Quick, send 15,000 pairs of shoes. I lease spaces for five stores in five different locations. We will open a chain of stores. This place is filled with opportunity. Nobody has shoes. You look at the same situation, two people look at it, two people look at it completely different. The Stipler Gaon, Rabbi Yisrael Yaakov Kanievsky, in his work on the Chumash, he explains that the poor attitudes help forge opinions that, that are diametric to the truth. The Gemara tells us man is led in the path that he chooses to travel. Imagine, the spies see these giant wailing funerals, massive funerals every day. They should have figured that this plague was an anomaly. For it was, if it was normal, they would have had funerals as part of everyday existence. It would have hardly been an event worthy of disrupting what was going on there. Again, compare. They were there for six weeks. They didn't get caught. Yehoshua and Ben-Has, I mean, Kalev and Ben-Has are caught within 24 hours. But the spies did not look at the events with that view. When people have sour opinions, they want to see only doom and gloom. They even, even a ray of light is going to blind them. Rabbi Kamenetsky wrote, he said, when one is constantly weighed down with worry, he's only going to drag his feet down the path of discontent. However, if we take life's bumpy road as a chance to exercise our endurance, to turn lemons into lemonade, then unlike the Meraglim, we can get light even from the darkest abyss. And one day we'll have the, the, the Zehut to follow the path of light to the promised land. So it's clear that the problem with the spies was a problem in perspective. To answer the second question, let's turn to Rabbeinu Bachya. He explains that the tzitzit that we wear are a symbol that reminds man not to chase after pleasures in the terrestrial universe, not to have everything our eyes are looking for. But he goes on, he says, the reason why the Torah mentions the heart before the eyes, 
is because even though the eye is the first thing to see, he says the reality is the heart acts as a guide and leader, and the eye follows the heart. In the case of the spies, it was the heart that influenced the eyes. The ten spies wanted to see bad in the land of, in the land of Israel. They wanted to justify their own preconceptions. The rabbis give a myriad number of reasons for their fear, ranging from a desire to continue under the tutelage of Moses, like we mentioned, to a lack of a desire to deal with the real world, to a fear of loss of their position. Yehoshua, Joshua, and Kalev didn't allow prejudices and fear to alter their view. They embarked with trust and they saw only good things in the land. The Mekubalim tell us that in order to push the Meraglim into having a more positive view, they were imbued with the souls of their ancestors, the Shivatim. says, but it didn't work. Even with them, they still had the choice and they chose wrong. Adjusting our perspective and that of our family and friends is crucial to happiness in life. Seeing the glass as half full versus half empty doesn't mean seeing a different glass. It just means we look at it from a different view. I want to close with two of my favorite stories. These are about perspective. I saw them brought by Rabbi Yitzchak Ulbaum. He writes about attending a wedding with Rav Pam in attendance. Now I'm gonna tell you, this happened to me a couple of times. I think any rabbi who does a wedding, this happens to. What happened was the father-in-law, the father of the bride, ordered a ketubah, which was very expensive, hand-painted beautiful work by the artist, hand-written by this artist, beautifully designed, source of pride for the newlyweds, specifically for the father-in-law. Right before they're sitting down to sign the ketubah, they notice there's a mistake in the ketubah that can't be fixed. And this ketubah is invalid. So they quickly go into the briefcase I always carry with me, an extra ketubah. They pull out... We've got to let somebody in. They, they pull out the extra ketubah, and this is a printed ketubah that they're going to fill in. And it's a far cry from the beauty of the previous ketubah. The father-in-law is very upset. He's completely distraught. He had this dream of hanging this beautiful ketubah in his children's house. Now, I don't know why anyone would want to hang a legal prenup in somebody's house, but anybody who hangs a ketubah, sorry. I don't know if that's a good thing to do. So I, I think this happens to all of us, every rabbi. What do you do now? They're freaking out because they want to use this beautiful ketubah, but it's no good. So you pulled out the other ketubah and you're going to fill it out. Rav Pam is there. He sees what's happening. He goes over to the father-in-law and he whispers something into the ear. What did he say? From that moment on throughout the rest of the night, the man had a huge smile on his face. Later they asked him, what did Rav Pam tell you that calmed you down? The father-in-law said, the father of the bride said, Rav Pam came to me. And he said to me that for some reason there was a decree in Shamayim that my children would need to have two ketubot. There are two ways that it could have worked out. Either she would receive a second ketubah because she would have gotten divorced or because one of the spouses would have passed away. Or we just took out a second ketubah, a new ketubah that had to be written. Hashem provided, Rav Pam said to him, the easier option. One ketubah became unusable, so a second ketubah would be needed. The father said, once I heard this, I immediately settled down. Unbelievable how hearing the story changes the perspective. I wish I knew that story when it happened to me. By far, I'm going to tell you my favorite story. This is a story you're going to remember always. It really shows you how a shift in perspective can change everything. It was very, very common scene for crowds of people to be lined up waiting for the bus back home from B'nai Brak 
to Yerushalayim. People would come to B'nai Brak and they would stay for Shabbat and then they would return to Jerusalem. Years ago, on one such occasion, close to a hundred people stood waiting for the 402 bus that would take them from B'nai Brak to Yerushalayim. But as the anticipated bus didn't show up, more people began waiting, but even at the next allotted time, no bus. 100 plus people standing there looking at the watch. Where's the bus? Where's the bus? Where's the bus? All agitated, all nervous. All of a sudden, they see the bus coming. The bus is coming. But they see on the front of the bus, it doesn't say Yerushalayim. It says it's the 210 bus to Ashdod. Of all the people standing there waiting for the bus, there's one guy who needs to go to Ashdod. He gets on the bus and he has the entire bus to himself. And all the people start to plead with the bus driver, please, we have to get to Yerushalayim. Please, just take us to Yerushalayim. And they're telling the driver, please, please, you have to do it. But the driver says, I can't. I work for Eged. I have a job. I have to go to Ashdod. I can't just take people wherever they want. I'm not a taxi. I have to follow the routes. But the crowd is persisting. There's so many people here waiting. You would be doing us such a great favor. Hashem's going to bless you. Please, please, just take us home. Take us to Yerushalayim. And the driver is saying, I wish I could. I really can't. I have a job. I can't leave my route. But eventually all the people are begging, begging, please, please. And he says, you know what? Everyone get on the bus. Don't tell anybody. So all the people start crowding onto the bus. All hundreds squeeze every inch of space. Within minutes, the whole bus is filled and everyone is so happy. Doesn't matter how tight they are. The only one guy who was supposed to go to Ashdod is upset. And he knows the driver. So he says, I don't understand, Yaakov. How, how are you going to do this? If this is the bus to Ashdod, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to lose your job. And he's, Shlomo, Shlomo, let me tell you. I'm going to explain to you. I saw how late we were. I saw no bus came. My bus really is the 402 bus to Yerushalayim. But when I saw all the crowd there freaking out, going crazy, I knew they're going to kill me. So I changed it to Ashdod. I pull up to the bus stop, tell them it's Ashdod. And then they begged me to go to Yerushalayim. So when I switched to Yerushalayim, I'm a big hero and they're all happy. All of them are relaxed. All of them are smiling. It doesn't matter how many are back there. They're all thrilled. Look how easy it was to change perspective. Look how the same situation, drastically different results. We should all think of this. We all have to be able to figure out how to look at life as the glass half full, not half empty. Bezrat Hashem will be blessed to do that. We'll be blessed to make up for whatever happened with the with the Miraglim. And we'll all be blessed to be in Israel and Yerushalayim. Bezrat Hashem. And see Mashiach. Thank you everybody for joining us.